title that I have is Called, Chosen, and Faithful in a World of Deception. There are many, many ideas about Jesus Christ out there in the wild world. There are, you know, the Protestant churches, and they have a variety of different takes. Uh, there's Catholics, Mormons, you know, they, they uh, will talk about Jesus, and they have a, you know, kind of a take on Jesus. Muslims have a take on Jesus. They will, they will talk to you about Jesus. Uh, it's a different take than we have. Uh, even if you think about it, even an atheist has a take on Jesus, who he was, what he was. And there's all kinds of ideas out there, options, and they're different. Does God just leave it up to you? Does he leave it up to the people? Does he leave it up to me? Does he just leave it up to us to figure it out on our own? There are more options and more things to look into than you can, you can even contain in your brain. Uh, if you get out on the internet and you look at a, you know, you follow a religious theme, you'll end up in all kinds of different places. But does God expect you to do that? Does he expect you to just pick up little tidbits of truth here and there where you find them? And then maybe, you know, you can start piecing them together into a semi-logical personal system of belief. Something that works for you. Is that God's plan? Are you left to figure out the truth all by yourself? Well, hopefully you've already jumped to the conclusion and answered that for yourself, but the answer to that is no. That is not how it works. The resurrected Jesus Christ is a very real, a very living and alive and active high priest. And he is at work today as your high priest, my high priest. And he has a very real and a very definite body of teaching. Let's call it a body of teaching. And he has a purpose, a very definite, delineated purpose. And he is operating towards a very specific goal with an operating plan, which can be known and can be understood. That's, that's the main point. It can be known. It's not mysterious. It can be known. And it can be understood. And to perform the active work of high priest in the world, Jesus said something that is very important or should be very important to you and it's very important to me and very important to why we are here today. He said, I will build my church. I will establish my church. And he said that in Matthew 16, the 18th verse. But that is the plan. I will establish a church. And as we've looked at in you know, previous messages, and he said, you know, basically, I will, I will be in charge of it, but I'm going to you know, have you guys, Peter, John, so forth, do it. Now, this word church is from the Greek, as you know, I, I think we've gone over this in the past. We'll go over it again. The Greek word is ecclesia, ecclesia. And it means people who are called, they were called together. They're called out of the, the greater body to become a sort of like a subset of people. They're called out and they form an assembly. And they gather together. And uh, if, you, if you go back and look at the way the word was used in the original Greek language, the way the Greeks used it, it referred more, more directly to when citizens were called out into an assembly to discuss affairs of state, kind of like a Congress or a Senate or something like that, an assembly. So this is what the church is. It is a group of people who have been called and drawn into an assembly. Go to Hebrews 12, verse 23. I'll back up. Verse 22, it says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and you have come to thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are recorded in heaven. And you have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So the church is an assembly. It's the assembly of the firstborn, as it says here, those who will be resurrected at Jesus' return to assist him in establishing and maintaining the rule of God on earth. 
The Church of God also has an important role and a part to play in uh, performing this work, in proclaiming, promoting, and explaining the truth in a world of deception. And in this way, God doesn't just leave you out there hanging on your own. He has given you, he has given the world, the church. The church in a world of deception. Go to 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. Paul writing to uh, Timothy, talking about church stuff. You know, Timothy was like a young minister, and Paul was kind of trying to explain the ropes to him. And uh, in the midst of this conversation about church life and conduct in the church and so forth, he says this about, uh, he makes a very interesting comment here in verse 15. He says to Timothy, if I'm delayed, now I'm coming to see you, but if I'm delayed, now you know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Here's the part I really want you to zoom in and think about, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of, of truth. The pillar and foundation of truth. The church provides the source of truth in this world. And that is what Jesus meant when he said, I will establish my church. And this is one of, I know there are more roles to the church and there are more things that the church does, but a very important part of what the church, that, that's us. What we do is this, to provide that source of truth in the world so that people don't have to figure it all out for themselves. And therefore, the church has a very important role to play in the process of how God calls people. What about that calling? Are there different types of calling? Yes, there are. And it's important for us to make sure that people understand that it takes something to become a true follower of God. Go to Matthew 7. And I mean a true follower of God. And here's what Jesus said about that. In Matthew 7, verse 21, and we'll read through verse 23. This is coming at the end of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And it's a section with my Bible. It says, true and false prophets, true and false disciples. In verse 21, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, get out of my sight. You workers of lawlessness. You workers of lawlessness. Okay. It is possible, based on Jesus' words, it is possible for a person who considers themselves to be a follower, perhaps even a teacher, a teacher of God's truth, to be very surprised when they are raised up Surprised because they will hear him say, I was never with you. I don't even really even know who you are. And you have no place with me now. You're a worker of lawlessness. That's what he said. Get away from me. You are a worker of lawlessness. And that parting shot about lawlessness is very important. Very important. And it provides you with a litmus test. People love their litmus tests, right? It provides you with a litmus test for who is teaching the truth and who is compromised. Now, a person may claim to be teaching in Jesus' name, as, as he kind of spelled out for us. They may claim to be teaching in Jesus' name, but if they teach that God's commandments are done away, no big deal, then something, something, is horribly wrong. Something is horribly wrong. Now, look, we all live in this world and we're not dummies. When you look at what's going on, you hear people, of, you know, you kind of look at them and you think this is what's going on. 
there may be some good and there may be truth mixed in with what they say. But if they teach against God's commandments, then their teaching can't be trusted. And those who cry out, as Jesus said, Lord, Lord, well, they, they do some pretty good stuff. I mean, they produce interesting, helpful books, right? Um, you, they might, you know, the concordance, Bible dictionaries, stuff like that, Bible topics, Bible books. They might distribute Bibles all over the world, right? Uh, they may feed the poor. But if they teach against God's commandments, something's wrong. Something's wrong. I mean, be these people said, look, didn't we, 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 we prophesied in your name. We did all these miracles. We did all this great stuff. And he said, get away from me. I, you're a worker of lawlessness. So people might do all this good stuff, but the fatal error of lawlessness may be there. Now, the fa if they've got that fatal flaw of teaching lawlessness, that doesn't make all the good stuff that they've done bad. That doesn't, you know, if someone's done all these great things, it doesn't turn them into bad things because there's error mixed in with the truth there. But it does disqualify them as a representative of Jesus Christ. A worker of lawlessness is not, a, or a teacher of lawlessness, worker of lawlessness, is not a representative of Jesus Christ. They just don't go together. And, you know, then everything biblical, like, look, I'm talking about even your own Bible that you got here. You have to be careful about this, the way it's translated. There are things in there that you've got to study into. You've got to look into it. You've got to really think about it. You've got to look into. And if you have questions and doubts and things like that, talk to the ministry. Talk to Mr. Parks. Talk to me. Everything that the people put forward of a religious and biblical nature must be questioned. Go to Matthew, we're in Matthew 7, drop back to verse 15. In the same section, Jesus said, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. So they look good. You know, they're dressed right. They've got the right outer appearance. But inwardly, they are ferocious wolves. And by their fruit, you will recognize them. And then he goes on to talk about that analogy. He says, do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. The fruit of teaching lawlessness is a telltale sign of what the, you know, like he's talking about the trees. You know, if you see an apple on a tree, it tells you that's an apple tree. The fruit of lawlessness tells you something is wrong. Even though, even though a person might drape themselves in Jesus, it can be horribly wrong. This is what Jesus told us and warned us about. He said, watch out. Go to 1 John 3, verse 4. This is a bit of a sidebar here. Just so we define lawlessness, make sure that we've got it covered. 1 John 3, verse 4 says, Okay, everyone who sins practices lawlessness. So now we know lawlessness is sin, right? Okay, sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin. Romans 7, verse 7. Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known that sin, what sin was had it not been for the law. What that's saying to you is that sin is defined by the law. Lawlessness is sin. Sin is defined by God's commandments. There's a lot more I could say about it, but that's, my, that's the 25-cent tour. <laughs> now, lawlessness, I, I know I've talked about it a fair bit recently. It's on my mind. Lawlessness is actually very appealing. Very appealing. Um, you know, if I, had, if I had to pick a job, you know, and I wanted to pick the easy job, if I had to choose between teaching obedience to God's commandments and lawlessness... Well, the easy job would be to teach lawlessness. That'd be a whole lot easier than teaching obedience to the commandments. My job would be a lot easier. But I can't do it. <laughs> I won't do it. We're in Romans. Go to chapter 8. Let's read verses 7 through 8, which say this. The mind, 
that thing going on in your head, the mind that is of the flesh is hostile to God. Hostile to God. And it does not submit to God's law. Nor indeed can it. Those who are in the realm of the flesh can't please God. Okay. The flesh and blood mind. I mean, it's made of molecules, atoms, and, you know, chemicals and stuff like that. And it's a flesh and blood thing. You know, you can pop it out of someone's skull. You can stick it in a jar. You know, they've done that with famous people's brains. It's a physical thing. The fleshly human mind is wired a certain way. It's wired to prioritize self-interest. That's how your mind is set up. It's prioritized to, to be self-interest. God made it that way so that you would survive, so that you could survive in a hostile physical environment. You're made to look, so you don't die, so you don't kill yourself, so you don't stick your hand on the stove and just wait for it to sizzle away. You pull back because it's in my best interest to pull back. Your brain is wired to look out for yourself so that you survive. But humans also have a spiritual component to them, which separates us from animals who are also wired to take care of their lives, their flesh. And we have this different element, a spiritual part of us. Now, the spiritual part of us is not yet fully formed, and that's a big message. I, I will give it a different time. And therefore, what's going on in the human mind is filled with spiritual attitudes, spiritual options, ideas, and concepts. Animals don't, they don't worry about stuff like that, but humans do. So even though you're, you're created being, you are flesh and blood, just like a, a fox or a cat or whatever, you have something different in you, spirit component. Now, all this is going on in your head. Your flesh is thinking self-interests. What does God's word point you towards? God's word points you towards considering the interests of other people. That's one way in which the flesh is hostile to the spirit of God. God's commandments are spiritual priorities. They set boundaries on behavior, on our thoughts, and on our attitudes. And they establish, they establish spiritual priorities which consider the needs of others as being as important as the needs of our self. And um, the fleshly part of us says, whoa, no way. My top priority is me. The spiritual part of us has to rule over that and accept, no, this is, this, there's more to it. There's something better. And this is what God has put in us through his word, through his understanding of his word. But it's an uphill battle because the flesh, no, that's not how it's wired. Go to 2 Thessalonians 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9. Talking a little bit more about lawlessness, 9 through 11. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. And he will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. And for this reason, God sends a powerful delusion so that they may believe the lie. Teaching lawlessness may be very appealing to the human mind, but it is deception. That's what I wanted to draw out from this verse. It is deception from the deceiver, from the adversary, and it is a teaching that is opposed to truth. Now, I mentioned in the title that we were going to talk about calling and choosing. Over the years, I have, I have heard many people use the terms called and chosen as if they're basically interchangeable and mean the same thing. And uh, I want to show you that they're not actually the same thing. They're not actually the same thing. Being called and being chosen are different steps on the path to salvation. Go to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 14. Famous verse. I know you've heard this one. For many are called, but few are chosen. You heard that one before, right? Right? Yeah, I knew it. Jesus' words here show us that there is indeed a distinction between 
being called, and choosing. Many are called. Few are chosen. Huh. Well, let me explain calling. At this moment in history, at this moment in history, the Bible, this book you have, is the most widely circulated book in the entire world. More people have a Bible than any other book in the whole world. And through this vast distribution of the Bible, God's call goes out to many, 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 millions, billions of people. Actually, you know, the printing and distribution of Bibles is one of the, you know, one of those works I was talking about where someone can say, Lord, Lord, but don't have the teaching of truth that goes with it. Anyway, so there's an example of where God's word goes out to all kinds of people, billions. Choosing. God chooses a person to receive eternal life when that person learns and accepts the truth and also repents in faith and is baptized. That's the difference between calling and choosing. You could say that calling is based on receipt of information <laughs> and choosing is based on the action that's taken as a result of the information. You could probably come up with a lot of different ways to look at it. Uh, 2 Peter 3 verse 9. I think some people uh, don't like the idea of calling or, or sort of cho choosing, you know, that there's a chosen people because it sounds like there's an elite group. And this scripture, I think, really, really helps understand that in God, you know, God's way of looking at things. In 2 Peter 3 verse 9, it says, The Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Why is God taking so long? Instead, he is patient. Now, why doesn't God punish that person right now? God is patient. What God wants is repentance. What he wants. I mean, prophecy is out there. Prophecy always points towards repentance. This stuff doesn't have to happen to you people. Even in Revelation with the seals and the vials and the horrible stuff, this doesn't have to happen. People can repent. Uh, you know, they don't, but they can. God is looking for repentance. It says, instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's what God wants. He wants everybody, God wants everybody to move from being called to being chosen. <laughs> if you think about it, he wants everybody to be chosen. That's, that's what God's about. Calling, though, does not automatically lead to choosing. It doesn't just automatically happen. Let's take a look at the parable of the sower. Go to Matthew 13 and verse 3. We'll read the parable and then we'll read Jesus' explanation of it. He's telling them a, a, a parable. And he says there was a farmer and he went out to sow his seed. You know, the farmer would take a big bag of seed back in those days. They didn't have tractors and combines. He'd take a big bag of seed and he'd reach into the bag and he'd go Whew! and walk a few steps and go Whew! and just get cover the whole field. That's how they'd sow the seed, okay? And uh, a farmer went out to sow his seed and as he was scattering the seed, some fell on the path and the birds came and they ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil and it sprang up quickly, but because the soil was shallow, when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because there was no root. Other seeds fell among thorns, which grew up and choked out the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, most people didn't get what he was saying. Most of the crowd, they didn't get it. Oh, wow, that was an interesting story. I have no idea what he meant. And the disciples didn't really get it at first either. And they went to him and they said, what does that mean? Which is what we need to do when we don't understand something. You know, go to the, <laughs> go to the teacher. What does that mean? Anyway, just drop down to verse 18. Here's what he told them. All right, I'm going to tell you what the parable meant. The parable of the sower means this. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. And that's the seed sown along the path. 
The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word at once, and they receive it with joy, but since they have no root, roots don't go down deep enough to get that nourishing water and so forth, because they don't have a root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to people who hear the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. And this is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Jesus' words are very helpful here. In each scenario, though, when you think about, remember what I was talking about, Bibles everywhere in the world? Well, in each scenario, the message is the seed, okay? The message is the seed, and it goes out. It's spread out far and wide, right? That's, that's what the parable is telling us. And uh, in each scenario, the content of the message is the same. It doesn't say he had four different bags of seed. And this bag of seed was, was good, and this bag of seed was no good. It's all the same bag, right? Same seeds. The difference is, the difference is where it landed. <laughs> the difference is where it landed and what they did, how they respond, and why. Let's take a look at that. First was the hardened places, right? First was the seed that fell in the hardened places. So, you know, the, the, when you plant a uh, uh, field, you plow it up and the ground's all soft and gooey and you walk on it and your feet sink down into it. And if, you know, enough people walk, 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 there gets to be a path of soil that's hard, right? It's hard and maybe, you know, if the sun's out. So if you throw the soil, uh, so if you throw the seed on it, it's just going to bounce right off the, the hard ground. And the birds come and they snatch it up. These are people for whom the truth of God never really makes it into their mind. They never really makes it into their mind because their minds are hardened through deception. Their minds are hardened through deception. I mean, you know, when you talk to people, if you ever talk to people about God's truth, there's sometimes you just talk to someone and it's like, no. <laughs> it's not like they, they never even, you know, being it didn't even go in one ear and come out the other. Just, no. They're hardened because of deception. Well, that just can't be true. What you're saying about that can't be true. Because everything I've always been taught is such and such. They're hardened through deception. And the source of that deception is Satan, as, as Jesus said. Second was the stony places. Stony places, right? Okay, these are people who, as Jesus said, they like what they hear. I like what that guy says. But the roots of what is planted don't go down deep into the ground to sustain them when the going gets tough, when the sun is blazing down, when it's hot and dry. And they give up when they're confronted with trials or persecution. A trial... Well, a trial is when circumstances in life go badly. We've all watched as others go through trials. We've experienced them ourselves. Sometimes it's health problems. Sometimes it's money woes. Things like that. That can blow people out of the water. Sometimes it's persecution, as Jesus said, trial or persecution. And persecution, I mean, we, we tend to think of it as, you know, like some Gestapo guy coming to our door and arresting us. But persecution can also be social pressure, right? And I think, you know, in our day, a lot of that pressure might come from your family, for example. Pressures at the job place. Pressure from friends. I don't know if you ever heard this, but, you know, yeah, I like the changes you've made in your life, but if only you weren't doing that crazy religion thing. And they don't get it. They go together. Pressure. Yeah, no, you're just, I can't hang out with you. You're too weird. You make me feel bad. Pressure, you know. Ever been pressured by your family or something like that? Um, so they give up. Then there were the thorny places. The thorny places, right? Okay, these are also people who like what they hear. Hey, I like what they're saying, you know. And this person, though, is not concerned about what others think. I don't care what other people think. Now, fooling on you, if you don't like me, too bad. What gets these people is what's going on inside them. What's going on inside them, right? The cares of this world get them. Their own selfishness, you know what? That's the kind of thing that messes them up, their own selfishness. And they find they don't want to stick with that way of life that God's taught them when it asks them to give up stuff that they like. I had, a, I had a very <laughs> poignant reminder of this in my own personal life just this past week. Yeah, that's 
That's why I can't do that. I'd forgotten. You know, it could be uh, people are asked to sacrifice some of their personal wealth. It could be time. Time that they could spend on other stuff that they are really personally excited about. You know, hobbies, pursuits, creative endeavors. Uh, it could be advancement at work. Or maybe I've seen it with substance abuse or sexual pleasures, stuff like that. So thorny places, these things choke out the truth. The last one was good ground, right? Good ground. One on a high note. This is a person who likes what they hear, they like what they hear, they take it seriously, and they put it into practice. That's the good ground. Really simple. That person is chosen. That's, that's the chosen. And this is an example through this parable of how many are called but few are chosen. Now, let's get back to the role of the church, because I mentioned that the, the church plays a role in this, to provide clear understanding of the true gospel. Jesus has established his church. You know, like I mentioned before, the church has other functions, but this is big, 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 big. The pillar of truth in this world is what, what we read in Timothy. Go to Romans 10. Romans 10, verse 14. Says, okay, how then can they, that's the big they, how can anyone, how can they call on the name of God? How can they call on the one they haven't believed in? How can they call on God if they don't even, you know, believe? And uh, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them, without someone telling them? And how can anyone tell them unless they're sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. This is a process. This is what we see here. This is how the information, the understanding goes forth in this world. Salvation happens because, we'll do it backwards, because someone is sent. That person teaches, preaches. Someone else hears it. That person believes. And that one who now believes calls upon the name of the Lord to be saved. That's it backwards. <laughs> Same sequence, just, you know, we went to ABC, BCA. Sending forth people to teach and to proclaim is one of the primary functions of the church that Jesus said he would establish. Go to Ephesians 4, verse 4. Longer section here. Let's read verses 4 through 15. Talking about the body of Christ here, the church of Jesus Christ, of which he is the head. It says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, one hope, when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And that's why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts. You know, it's basically saying Jesus is here, he's giving gifts. And he, what does he ascended except that he descended. So this is God who had descended. It's a little bit of a sidebar for Paul. Um, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So, now getting back to the gifts, okay? Getting back to the gifts. Paul says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. So this is something that he's given to the world, to humanity, to all of us. He's given this, verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the craft and cunningness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Jesus Christ. There's a lot in there. 
and maybe I read too much, hopefully not, but there's a lot in there. But what we can draw from that, what we can draw from that in this context is, it says there's one hope. There's one body. There's one truth, basically, is what he's saying. There aren't multiple truths in the world. There's truth and then everything else. And there is an established and agreed upon, understood body of teaching and doctrine within the church of God. And that it's the church's responsibility, commission, uh, if you want to, think, to talk like the prophets, the church's burden, <laughs> we must do this. We must teach the truth. We have to. We don't have a choice. This is what we have to do. But there is a body of teaching and a body of understanding that Jesus has for people to learn. And he works through the church to put that in front of people so that they can accept it. And they can move on, you know, and they can become chosen and so forth. Go to Revelation 12, verse 17. This is becoming my favorite scripture lately. <laughs> I realized I'm turning to it quite a bit. Uh, at the end of this section of Revelation, talking about the war that the church is involved in with deception, with uh, you know, the, the dragon who deceived the whole world, it says in verse 17, the dragon was enraged at the woman, who was the church, and he went to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Here's the part I want you to really focus on. Those who keep God's commands... And hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. That's what you need to see. Right? You're wondering what the truth is. I mean, I hope, you know, I hope I'm not oversimplifying it. But you've got to have these two things to find out where is the church of Jesus Christ. They have to be holding fast to God's commandments and the testimony of Jesus. You can have one. That's good. But no. You can have the other. It's like, yeah, there's good in that. But no. You've got to have the full package. And the church of Jesus Christ, what I really like about this scripture, the church of Jesus Christ does not and will not teach lawlessness. And that's your litmus test. <laughs> that's your litmus test. Now look, okay. Um, having been established by Christ does not mean that the ministry of the church is infallible. The ministry of the church is not infallible. Error can creep in to the church, and the church has to weed it out. There's another parable about that, right? The weeds. The church has to weed it out, and it does. You've, we've lived through some of that ourselves. Some of us, some of us haven't. The church has had to do that. Weed some stuff out, because it got in there. It's like, ah, got to deal with this. But I put it to you that because... Jesus Christ is the head of the church. You can count on him to make sure that it does get taken care of. It may not be <laughs> easy and it may not be pleasant, but the bad stuff will get cleaned out of his church. But you and I must use wisdom along the way. That's my caveat. Got to say that. Uh, go back to 2 Thessalonians 2. We were there a little bit before. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. This is actually coming in after that section we read earlier about the man of lawlessness. In verse 13, it says, okay, we know about this teaching of lawlessness, but we ought always to thank God for you, the church, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. And the church of God acts as God's instrument, if you will, to uh, make this calling and choosing happen. So a person is called through access to God's word, the Bible, and um, the act of public preaching, teaching, and instruction. Okay? That's what a sermon is. right? That's what a sermonette is. That's what we do. Uh, that's what the telecast is. That's what the magazine is. That's what the scriptures are. And they are knowledge-needed to reach repentance for sin. That's what you need to know, to reach repentance for sin. Those who respond positively are called to salvation, as we just read. Salvation from death. Uh, 
So, you know, you're not just going to rot in the grave forever. You will be resurrected. You will live. You're saved from that. That's what salvation is. And you get that through what we read there, through believing the truth, through receiving and being led by God's Holy Spirit. Right? Oh, I just introduced something new, didn't I? The Holy Spirit. Let's talk about the administration of the Spirit for a little bit, okay? The giving and the receiving of the Holy Spirit is a personal uh, spiritual interaction between God and you as an individual, all right? That's, that's what's happening there. It is a very personal thing that is happening. They like to call it a, what is it, a vertical. <laughs> and, uh, but God instructs that this very, very personal thing that's going on in your spiritual life that's conducted between you and him is accompanied by a solemn act, a very solemn act that is done in a very public setting, if you will, with witnesses. I'm speaking of baptism and the laying on of hands. I mean, when we baptize, we like to have people there as witnesses. You'll at least have the person who's being baptized and the person baptizing them. So you'll at least have two witnesses, but there'll be witnesses to a baptism. It's a public thing, if you will. There are witnesses there. It's a public thing. You enter into the new covenant with God and other people hear you say it. I've done it with some people in this congregation here. Other folks hear you say it. They hear you say it. They watch you do this ceremony. You know, first you're immersed in the water. You die to sin. And then you're raised up in the newness of life. And people witness this. And then a member of the ministry lays hands upon your head so that you receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's what God brings to the agreement. You know, <laughs> the Holy Spirit. You, know, you, you kind of bring yourself. Right? You give yourself to him. And he, he gives you something very, very good, very important. Holy Spirit. Look, you can't baptize yourself. Nor can you just go out in the street and have any random person say, Hey, would you baptize me? That's not how it works. You don't just go out in the street and grab a random person to lay hands on you. No. The reason is, when you do it the scriptural way, what's really going on is that the baptism that you're going through is being administered by Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. And whether it's me or it's Mr. Parks or a, a, you know, someone else, that's what's going on. Someone who's been appointed as a a minister will do this. You're being baptized. It's being administered by Jesus Christ himself through his church. The living, active high priest who once again, even in this very spiritual personal matter, is operating through his church. I mean, that's the scriptural model. No two, two ways around it, as far as I'm concerned. One more thing. Okay, remember the title? Calling, Choosing, and Faithfulness. All right. You might think, faithfulness, how is he going to handle that in a short time left? <laughs> it's a big subject, right? All right, perseverance in the truth. Perseverance in the truth. So a declaration of, of faith and that really awesome moment when a person comes up out of the water and they are really happy, everything's, wow, this is great. That's just the beginning. It just starts. You know, some people look at it like that's the goal. That's all I need. I just need to get baptized. And it's like, no, that's just the beginning, friend. That is just the beginning. Mr. Parks is laughing over there. <laughs> he's had a lot. <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah, I know that now. Um, so, you know, you get that bright, shining moment in your life. And it is, indeed, a very bright, shining moment in your life when you rise up out of the water. Uh, but that's, that's not the goal. You haven't achieved the goal. That's just the beginning of working towards the goal. And salvation and eternal life, I mean, look, they're God's gift to you. He says, ah, it's my gift to you. I'm going to give this to you. But there are expectations. This is something that trips people up. There are expectations. To put it short, God expects you to stick with the program. That's the expectation. All right, we've done this. You've got the Holy Spirit. You're going to have to go through some stuff. Stick with it. Go to Matthew 24. Verse 12, and we'll read verse 12 and 13. This is uh, 
in the midst of Jesus' section of uh, basically prophecy. He's telling people about end time events and so forth. And he says this very, very important little thing here in verse 12. Because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm, who perseveres to the end, will be saved. Notice once again the reference to lawlessness and the effect that it has on people. Because of lawlessness, people will give up because of deception in this world. Hey, you know what? Everybody's doing it. You should see my Instagram feed, all these people going on about stuff. It's, you know, everybody's doing it. What's the big deal? And people will grow cold. That's what it says. Lawlessness. And if people stop teaching obedience to God's commands and teach lawlessness. But I think we've seen a tremendous uptick in the, like the past hundred years. Just my take on stuff like that. But uh, he also says, if you back up, he says, many false prophets will appear and deceive many people because the increase of wickedness, because of this increase in wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. So there's going to be an uptick in deception in this end time scenario that Jesus is talking about. But notice that false teachers are once again linked to lawlessness. That is the essence of false teaching. Lawlessness. And you're to persevere in godly love. Don't let it grow cold. And to avoid the deceptive appeal of those who teach lawlessness. And endure and stick with it until the end. Sounds easy. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> now some people incorrectly assume that, that any mention that I might make or any other minister might make about God having expectations and conditions means that, well, you have to live a perfect life. You know, you have to, well, that, you're just saying that I have to be perfect. Never make a mistake in life. No, that's not, that's not really the teaching. What perseverance is more like this. When you fall, God wants you to get back up again. If you're knocked back two steps after taking, you know, a step forward, God expects you to get your balance and start moving forward again. That's perseverance. That's what God is looking for. He knows you're not perfect. He knows you're not perfect. He wants to see perseverance in the truth. That's what he's looking for. Go to Revelation 17, verse 12. A time of deception. Well, I talked a little bit about deception you know, ramping up towards the end. Well, this is a section of prophecy here, which ends with a very interesting point. So let's start in verse 12, and it says, The ten horns you saw are ten kings. So he's talking here about end time events and all that stuff, which is a totally different message. Who have not yet received their kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose, give their power and authority to the beast, and they will wage war against the lamb. But the lamb will triumph over them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with him will be his called and his chosen and his faithful followers. To me, that completes the equation. Those who are called, who are chosen, and who are faithful will prevail. You can't just be called. Just, I've heard the information. Don't do anything about it. Can't just be chosen. Say, well, I'm chosen. Everything's done. Woo you have to be called, chosen, and faithful. And endure to the end. That's, com that's the complete formula, <laughs> if you will. All right, God's church. I'm going to get back to God's church. God's church helps you in the face of adversity. It's one of the things that God's church can must, should, hopefully is, doing. Yeah, so again, if you've fallen, if you've fallen and, you've, and, and you, know, you, you don't know how to get back up, you've forgotten which way is up, <laughs> and you're down there, which way is up? Should I go this way or that way? The church of God is here to help you regain your bearings. That's how we would help you in a situation like that. 
If you've been knocked backwards, you know, you've taken your steps forward and been knocked back, and you've forgotten which way is forward. Should I go this way? This way? The Church of God is here to help. That's what we do. We are here to help. You have also God's word and God's instruction and his ministry to help you get your compass working again. Turn your GPS on. <laughs> uh, Jesus Christ is active, living. He's alive. He's resurrected. He's real. He's working for you and with you to help. He works through his church. He operates through the instrument of the church that he said, I'm going to establish a church. Here's what it does. Here's what it's going to do. So let it work for you. Let the church do that for you. Now look, we can't make your problems go away. That would, that's a fallacy. We can't make your problems go away. The other members can't make them go away. But we can provide solidarity. The solidarity of knowing that you're not alone. Other people are in this with you. They have faced similar things, maybe facing similar things. Other people, this is very important, I think, other people who are not crazy, <laughs> other people of sound mind and judgment believe the same thing you believe and are doing the same thing you're doing and they're engaged in the same work. That is very big. It's important to me. I hope it's important to you. We're seeking the same goal, that one hope, fighting the same battles. Go to Hebrews 12. Final verse. Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 3. This is at the end of the long section on all the people who have gone before, who have been faithful, who have looked forward to that one hope. At the end it says, Okay, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. 